Well, good morning, everybody, um, here in the Wren Suite at St Paul's Cathedral. So a warm welcome to our friends who are listening to this as a podcast. Uh, we're here uh, just before the start of the second week of Advent, where we are going to be considering the prophets. And I, as with last week, I'd just like to keep a little time of quiet and prayer before we start. And here are some words from Jane Williams' book, The Art of Advent, which is the Archbishop of York's Advent book for 2018. Like the patriarchs, the prophets help us to prepare for the coming of Christ by maintaining an expectation of the presence and action of God. Even in situations where God seemed utterly remote or powerless, the prophets continued to hear God and to discern him at work. Blessed are you, Sovereign Lord, just and true. To you be praise and glory forever. Of old you spoke by the mouth of your prophets, but in our days you speak through your Son, whom you have appointed the heir of all things. Grant us, your people, to walk in his light, that we may be found ready and watching when he comes again in glory and judgment. For you are our light and our salvation. Amen. So last week, I started by saying that we needed to remember remember God's goodness in that carol that I read to you, to remember where we have come from. And we looked at Adam and at Eve and at Abraham and Isaac as they grappled with two tests, one simple and one rather more complicated. And part of that business of remembering was to remind ourselves that there is a plan, that God has a plan and that we are part of it. We're in there right from the very beginning. I found myself wondering the other day if there will ever be a proper Advent calendar, if anyone would ever be brave enough to put out a proper Advent calendar, you know, one that starts on the first day of Advent rather than on the first of December, and one which isn't full of robins or pictures of presents or, if you're lucky, scenes from the early life of Christ but one which actually shows images of uh, Advent, of this line of uh, patriarchs and prophets and the people that lead up to the birth of Christ. And in that sense, I do very much um, commend this book of um, of Jane Williams, uh, The Art of Advent, because she has captured um, that exactly in her book. It would be brilliant, I think, to see this as part of our meditations, to see images of Adam and Eve, uh, because I think we do forget that we're in relationship with God, and it's something for which we, um, we have to be constantly thankful. The prophets are the people who remind us that we are in relationship, indeed that the relationship is special. It's a special relationship. 
in England, we think we know about special relationships, but this is uh, this is one this is one which even transcends the one which we have with our friends overseas. And as with our own relationships, our own deep and personal relationships, one that isn't tested isn't worth the paper it's written on. It's not necessarily the good things in life which teach us uh, the important lessons. It's the difficult things. It's the bad things. So the fall of Adam and Eve, the trauma which Abraham has to go through, the morally dubious actions of Jacob, which I didn't have time to talk about last week, and the personal trauma that he also has to endure, these are things, these are things to which we can relate, because they are human like we are human, and it is our condition to go through life and to deal with it. In all forms of trauma, uh, it's often very difficult to discern the will of God. You know, people, people get very angry when bad things happen in the world. Where is God? Why does God let this happen? Well, as we mentioned last week, God is not a Greek or a Roman deity. He doesn't appear. He doesn't appear and, and wave a magic wand and things happen. I'm afraid life isn't like that. And we discussed last week a little bit the idea of free will, that we um, may have the right to make our own decisions, and we have the responsibility to respond to the difficult things in life because they are an essential part of our condition. Bad things happen. But it's very hard sometimes to remember, to come back to that word, that God is in the room with us. And uh, that's something which the prophets are rather good at reminding us. The season of Advent is full of clarion calls, what I like to call clarion calls. Clarion is a trumpet, it's very noisy, uh, and it, it disturbs us. Um, it says things like, wake up, get ready, imperative commands, do something, even to God. We spend quite a lot of time uh, in the music uh, of Advent saying, come quickly, don't be late, noli tardare is addressed to God. Don't be late, arise, get up, exorge. The prophets are people who sound these calls as well. More to us, though, than to the Lord. So let's start by thinking, what is, what is a prophet? And, and a little bit on, on who they are. So I would say, prophets are people who stand up and say it like it is. And I think that's, that's quite important. They proclaim God's message to his people often uh, in a historical context. So something is going on in the development of, of the nation of Israel and they respond to it. And that can be an internal problem, the worshipping of false idols, uh, often the worshipping of false idols, uh, or a sense that they've lost their way, they're not going in the right direction. Or it can be as a result of an external pressure, somebody, uh, a nation attacking Israel. Um, and so therefore there is a sense that they are providing a reason for why that might happen. So, it, it's, but it's a twofold duty, I'd say. They tell us what's going on, uh, but they also uh, give us hints about what's going to happen in the future. So one, one writer has put it rather neatly to say that they have two jobs, which is to foretell, to tell it as it is, and to foretell, to tell us what's going to happen before it happens. The characteristics of a prophet, um, I think, are, are three. I've sort of mentioned uh, some of this already. There are three things. They're preachers. They're preachers. 
Uh, they're people who predict, they're foretellers, and they're guards. They're people who keep guard over, over the nation of Israel, and they're not beyond wagging their finger and saying, you're getting this wrong. So as preachers, uh, they can be quite strict. Uh, they, will, uh, they will tell us off. Um, they will threaten judgment. They will call to repentance. Uh, there's, there's a considerable amount of this. Let's not forget, I think we mentioned last week, that one of the defining features of Abraham was that he believes in the one true God. This is not the norm for the states uh, that surround Israel, and indeed in Israel itself. It takes a long time for things to change. I mean, if you want, to, if you want two examples, I, I mentioned the second one with, uh, with a certain amount of um, um, sadness. Um, if you think of the English Reformation, uh, when the country decided to stop um, following the Roman Catholic faith and to move to a version of Protestantism, it took a long time for the country to get over that. Arguably, not even until the 20th century did the final vestiges of that problem go away. And of course, if you really want to know about division and how hard it is to move on, then Brexit. Yeah. You know, people, we, we have these ideas that in, in history sometimes things happen very fast. You know, the Reformation was then. So when Abraham stands up and says there is one God, it's, it's just him really at the start. It takes a long time for this to move on, which as a, an aside, I should say, makes the spread of Christianity even more remarkable. Um, but I'm, I'm not talking about that at the moment. <laughs> that's for another, that's for another cause. Um, so the, the, the prophets are continually coming up against this problem of the worshipping of false gods. Um, and I would say that calling people to repentance takes up more time than almost anything else that they do. Um, but there is always a carrot and a stick. So yes, you get told off, but you get the promise of things to come and what will happen if you, um, if you, um, if you uh, repent and change. Uh, it's unfair of me to say carrot and stick in one way, because a carrot and stick implies that we think up something nice. If you do something difficult, we will give you something nice. That's not why they're doing it, I think. They're doing it in order to show that this plan for us exists. We are in relationship with God, and there is a plan. And if you repent, and if you change, the plan can continue. It's quite important when it comes to the matter of uh, predictions, by the way, that, that prophets have to get it right. If you get it wrong, if you predict something and it doesn't happen, the end of the world is going to happen next Tuesday. Let's say, I've got to go to hospital on next Tuesday. So let's say the end of the world is going to happen next Tuesday. If I turn up here and talk to you next Saturday, you're not going to be very, you're not going to be very impressed with my prophesying. Okay, so prophets have to get it right. And one of the things that's said about Samuel, about the prophet Samuel, uh, is that the Lord is with him and none of his prophetic words ever failed. It's a huge responsibility, isn't it? Uh, and the final category I mentioned, preachers, um, predictors, and uh, guards, people who guard. Ezekiel is one of those. Okay? He's very, uh, you're going to encounter him in a really frightening um, manner a little bit later on. Um, he's uh, one of the people who stands up and says, you've got to, uh, you've got to get this right. And you have got, to, you must behave, behave morally, don't get involved in things which are inappropriate. And as usual, there is one true God. Now, it might be uh, useful, just before we get into the music, just to think about 
um, where these prophets fit in the, in the biblical story. And I came across, I'm a bit embarrassed by this, and when I was trawling online for various ideas and, and um, for this talk, I came across an absolutely brilliant short timeline of the Bible, which I thought, oh, this is fantastic. And I wrote um, something uh, sort of based around it, and then I, can't, I haven't been able to find it. I will, I'm going to keep trying, so I want to credit the person who's done it. Um, it's a very good short thing. So this is, this is how it goes. Okay, So in the, the early books of the Bible, talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, this is really about how God's people are created and develop. So Genesis is election, if you like. Um, humanity is created. The relationship is created. There is redemption in Exodus. You go through the desert, you go through the Red Sea, you get to the Promised Land. Sanctification in Leviticus, becoming holy. How are you holy? How do we make that holy? Direction in numbers, how to behave, and instruction in Deuteronomy. So there is, it's, it is the creation of humanity, the start of the relationship, and the sophistication of that relationship. Then you move into a period of historical books. Uh, we see that um, God's people are given the promised land. Uh, in Joshua, there's oppression by foreign nations, uh, especially when um, the people of Israel are unfaithful. There is, a, there is a, a correlation here, and it's a slightly dangerous one. If you're bad, you get punished. It's very childlike, isn't it, in, 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 our, in our thinking. And, and maybe that says something, not necessarily about God's relationship with us, but in how we behave, that we can be rather childlike or childish even sometimes in how we deal with things. Uh, after that time, you get stabilization under King Saul. That's in 1 Samuel. And then expansion under King David in 2 Samuel. And you get very, um, uh, very great glorification under King Solomon. Then there's division of the people, and that's when the, the, uh, the, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes are, are split. They both, both teams suffer deterioration, and eventually they're taken off to Assyria and Babylon, that was also in two kings. And then the temple is deprived and destroyed in one and two chronicles. Uh, but God's faithfulness remains, and there's a reconstruction of the temple in Ezra, and the restoration of a remnant of the nation to the land in Nehemiah, and the protection of God's people in Esther. So it's a very, very short, because there, there is a problem with the Old Testament, I think, sometimes. We just, we don't, we don't see that, this timeline. So maybe we need a calendar for the whole year, which takes us through the whole of, of this bit of the Bible. It's with this background that the prophets speak to us. Okay, having gone through that process of inheritance, inheriting promised land, growth, fall, and then starting reconstruction, that is when the prophets really start. Well, they talk all the way through, but particularly the ones I'm looking at today. The earlier prophets, and I'm thinking here of Hosea, Joel, and Amos, are particularly keen on the idea of a restoration, a reconstruction of the nation by a Messiah. Isaiah and Micah are the two who, more than any other, predict a salvation of the world, not just the people of Israel, through the coming of Christ or through the coming of a son. 
Uh, and then, of course, there are the people who uh, talk to us about the bad stuff. Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. They're the ones who warn about God's uh, punishment and retribution. If you get it wrong, this is what happens. And, of course, that reaches its height with Jeremiah, and particularly in the book of Lamentations. Ezekiel is the one who's, he's the one shouting on the rooftops, you know, you've got to get it right. Um, he expects it all to improve. He seriously expects that things are going to get better. Daniel is the one who predicts that things will change most clearly. And, of course, we have the wonderful story of the three guys in the fire um, being, um, being um, punished, being, uh, being, being killed for not worshipping a false god and how they survive, and how it changes the structure of society. So I'm not be able, it may become a some relief to you that I'm not going to be able to get through all these prophets in one day. <laughs> I'm going to choose four of them. Uh, maybe, if, maybe if we've got time, I might do a fifth and a sixth, but we'll see. Um, I want to start with the person I was going to talk about last week as a trailer uh, for this week, and that's Elijah. We haven't mentioned Elijah yet. Um, Elijah, I want to start with him because he's brilliantly human. He really is. He's very brave. Gosh, he's very brave. He gets up in front of these prophets of Baal, hundreds of them, hundreds of prophets of Baal, because that's how bad things have got. And he's the person who stands there and says, no, 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 there is one God. He's also something of a depressive. Uh, and he worries about getting it wrong, and he worries about his place in the world. He's doing his work in a time when Israel has forgotten to remember. It has not remembered that the Lord is one God and that they are in special relationship. They've not only turned away from his commandments, but they've turned away from their love and their respect. Now, Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. That's a pretty definite statement, isn't it? Can't get away from that. I should mention, of course, at this point, we now have a name. If you remember last week, I told you that Abraham didn't even know God's name. That's how great his faith was. Well, between then and now, we've got a name, Yahweh. Elijah speaks out particularly against the false god Baal, who is a favourite of the much vaunted lady Queen Jezebel. We still have Jezebel in our language now. If you're a Jezebel, you're a really terrible person. She is the wife of King Ahab. And it's interesting, she comes in for more criticism than him, mainly because she's powerful and clever, and Ahab is weak and vacillating. Uh, so that's why she gets it in the neck slightly more than him. Elijah has enormous faith in God. Uh, but as I said, he suffers periods of great doubt and depression. So he has no doubt when he's, uh, when he's in the wilderness. When he announces, he goes to Ahab and Jezebel and says there'll be a drought over the earth. This is God's punishment for your lack of love and for not following his, his commandments. There will be a drought over the land. And he flees away from the wrath of Ahab. And he ends up with a widow in the desert. And do you remember she has a very small jar of meal uh, and a little oil? And he says to her, this will last for as long as the drought does. It will not run out. And it doesn't. It doesn't. It's huge faith. However, 
when he's travelling to Mount Horeb sometime after this, uh, and he's in the wilderness for 40 days, again, a little aside, you should notice 40 is a very important number in, uh, in symbolism, number symbolism. Jesus is in the, the, the desert for 40 days, and there are, there are many, many more. Um, he, he has a sort of conversation with God when he suggests that everything he's done is a total waste of time and he just wants to die. You know, that's, uh, it's very good for us in our modern life to realise that these people from these pages of this book called the Bible are real people. They're flesh and blood, they have emotions, and they have worries, and they have real doubt. And I find huge comfort in that, uh, that, that, you know, that, that, that this is not a divine person. It's flesh and blood. Now, uh, I want to start our first bit of music um, with uh, the story of Elijah, part of the story of Elijah, and uh, particularly this business of dealing with the prophets of Baal. Uh, and Mendelssohn, Felix Mendelssohn, got hold of this and wrote an absolutely stonking oratorio um, called Elijah, which is handy. It does what it says on the tin. Just to uh, make sure you know, an oratorio is a little bit like an opera. In fact, in this period and in the earlier period, very similar to an opera, except uh, oratorio is on a sacred text and operas are on a secular text. Uh, there are dramatic scenes in both opera and oratorio. And I mentioned again last week, just to remind you, you have something called restatives, which normally tell you what's going on. Then he got up and did this. She was very angry and threw something at him. That's, that would be an arrestative. And then in an aria, a more extended uh, piece of music, you reflect on what's just happened. Uh, there's also usually an important role for the chorus, and we're going to see that uh, a little bit later on. And that's basically the structure of opera and oratorio until things get made very complicated by the appearance of someone called Wagner, but we won't go into that just now. So, having announced the drought on earth, Elijah has fled into the wilderness. Um, he's supported by the widow. Eventually, he returns to confront Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. Um, now, he then plays a really risky card. So, he says, okay, let's have a competition. So let's get a sacrifice, let's get some meat, and we'll just, it's very simple, it's very simple. You could get Baal to bring down some consuming fire and consume the sacrifice, and uh, I'll do the same, and let's see which god does it. This is, this is a risky, this is a high, really high-risk strategy uh, for him to do. Now, um, the prophets of Baal writhe around and shout and bellow and do all their stuff, and, and nothing happens. And Elijah, again, this gives you an idea of how brave he is. There are many prophets of Baal, and there's only one of him. And there's Ahab and Jezebel, you know, up there somewhere, waiting, just waiting for their moment. This is what Elijah's response is when they fail to produce fire the first time. He says, cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he has wandered away, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Then they cried aloud, and, as was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out over them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no answer, and no response. 
Well, that's it's 1 Kings uh, 18, 27-29. Just, just worth considering that this cult of Baal is not a very attractive one, um, uh, with the amount of self-harm that's, uh, that's involved here. Uh, I'm not going to play you uh, the scene of um, Baal We Cry to Thee, which is when the chorus, um, the chorus are doing their, I have to say, slightly polite version of what has just been described in 1 Kings. But I want to play you Elijah's reaction to it. Because Elijah sings a beautiful and serenely confident aria addressed to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, or Israel, as he's, he's renamed and in this aria. This is Elijah's starting point. He needs to connect backwards into history. He stretches back in order to connect with that powerful relationship. So he's in relationship with God through his predecessors because of his inheritance of love and spirituality. It's entirely different to the hysterical callings of the prophets of Baal. And after the aria, we're going to listen to the next quartet, solo voice quartet, which I absolutely love. He that shall endure to the end, it's called. So if you have a look at your handout, it's the first, the first two pieces you come from. And what this quartet is saying to us is, if we have the faith of Abraham, if we have that, that bl almost blind, I don't like the context, the, the concept of blind faith, but almost faith so deep, that, that, that our questionings, which are inevitable, can be answered. We can cast our burden on the Lord, and he will sustain us. He will never suffer the righteous to fail. He is at our right hand. For our, our friends on our podcasts, I sadly can't play the music to you because of uh, copyright versions, but uh, you can get the playlist uh, from wherever you've downloaded this podcast and uh, listen along. The wonderful voice of uh, Tom Allen there, um, with the Academy of St Martin the Fields and Neville Mariner um, singing. Any uh, any thoughts about that? Anyone? Uh, do you like it? I think it's, it, I have to say, Mendelssohn's a massively underrated composer in my mind. Absolutely gorgeous. What do you notice about it? Do I hear anything? Sincerity, absolutely. Sincerity, as someone's just said. So, and when you think, so the the thing I read out about what the prophets of Baal are doing. This is completely the opposite. It sounds, it's tall music, I think. He sounds tall. Sounds tall and confident and calm. Absolutely, so we're just saying that it's very gentle compared with the shouting that's come before. It's very, it's very gentle. Um, and you see, I think this speaks very um, clearly of our personal relationship with God, both, both as a race and as an individual, Elijah's relationship with God. He is confident enough in God, not only to stand up in front of the prophets of Baal, in front of Jezebel and Ahab, but also to be calm about it. He goes, he goes into himself in order to connect with God. And Mendelssohn's played... Sorry, madam, yeah. It is absolutely. It makes it is, so. It's, somebody's just saying it's more compelling in that way. And you're right. We have a, we in musical terms. Sometimes we have to say to singers and to players, make the audience come to you. Don't don't always don't always go out. You know. Sometimes people like singing loud because it's fun and it's exciting. Sometimes you need to sing quietly so that the audience has to come to you. And that's exactly that's exactly what he's doing there. I mean, he has moments of great power. So, yes, Madam Fetcher. 
It does express great love. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. It is, a, it is like a love song. Um, and because the opera and oratorio lines become very blurred here, so it could almost be, that could almost be an opera aria. And there again we get into the sort of thing that Mozart taught us, which is that human emotion and spiritual emotion can sort of feel the same. So you find that um, um, you know, the Arnie's Day of the Coronation Mass sounds really rather like one of the Countess's arias from The Marriage of Figaro, because the emotion is sort of, it stirs emotion in us, and the love, the depth of the love should be as great so, yeah, it is, I think it is a bit like a love song. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. I would say we're just, uh, the gentleman here is just saying that um, one of the successes of Elijah is that it's very direct, that it's a very direct communication. That's why choral societies like it. Actually, in my experience, it tends to go in and out of fashion, Elijah. When I was singing, I could go for seven or eight years and never do one, and then all of a sudden everyone started doing it again. Um, and, of course, Mendelssohn has had a slightly bad press. He's part of that in, in some ways, in terms of choral music, sometimes he gets lumped in with that English 19th century, oh, it's another oratorio, and it's slightly embarrassing words and slightly embarrassing music. So, bail we cry to thee, you know, or the waters gather, they rush along, people say, well, it's a bit embarrassing. But I think the music is, I think the music is brilliant. Um, I didn't use the Savalish recording, which I like very much, but because I wanted to play one in English. Um, uh, so that's, that's, why I've, um, that's why I've changed over. But, you see, I think there's, there's something which, which you're just missing a little bit, because... Um, Mendelssohn plays a blinder here. So you have that brilliant aria. I could think of this dramatically. There's the prophets of Baal, all shouting, you know, send fire, send fire, let's, let's cut ourselves up, beat ourselves up. Doesn't work. Elijah stands up and, and prays this, this beautiful, beautiful song. What should happen? It should happen. It needs to happen, doesn't it? The fire needs to happen. It doesn't yet. It will do. <laughs> but Elijah's, um, um, Mendelssohn's response and his librettist's response to that prayer is to just press the pause button and step outside and say, what does this mean for us? What, what does this mean about our relationship with God? The fact that this man can stand here bear, bearing witness to God in an entirely hostile environment. What does this mean for us and our relationship with God? And I think this text here is absolutely beautiful because it's so simple. Cast thy burden. Oh, there's huge amounts of bass in that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the lady's talking about the use of the double bass um, in, in the um, in the in, in the because uh, it's fantastically effective in the quartet because they sing unaccompanied and then the orchestra does a great swell on every night. But it's worth just reading this text. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He never will suffer the righteous to fail. He is at thy right hand. Thy mercy, Lord, is great and far above the heavens. Let none be made ashamed that wait upon thee. And then Mendelssohn lifts his hand off the pause button, and then you go on with the rest of the story. So I think it's absolutely brilliant. Now, I need to move to probably the quintessential prophet of Advent and Christmas, who's Isaiah. Isaiah had a very long ministry Wiser people than me tell me that it ranges from about 740 to 680, which is a quite a long time. So you're talking about um, getting going at the end of the reign of King Uzziah and going through Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. So he's getting through quite a lot of uh, monarchs. That's, that's quite a lot of uh, forth telling to do about what's going wrong. 
Uh, Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. So again, here's an uncompromising statement, just in the very nature uh, and of his name. And he has several themes. One of them is that um, salvation, um, salvation comes from God the Redeemer, the person who's coming to save us. That's where salvation is. It's, it's not the strength of man. It's not, uh, it's not in what um, humanity does. It's in the strength of God the Redeemer. Um, he is um, we, at Christmas time. We, we tend to do the uh, the more Christmassy, the foretelling stuff. This will happen. A virgin will conceive. Uh, um, what about for unto us a son is born? I mean, that's the one I'm thinking of. Uh, he tends to do that sort of thing. But he is also quite good at ch- chastening and and telling us off. Um, and he's sometimes referred to as the most evangelical of the prophets because because he's so all encompassing. Uh, Isaiah looks forward to the coming of the Messiah uh, to prepare the way of the Lord. That's another great Advent theme, getting ready, preparation. Um, And he wants our crooked ways straightened, but also um, he wants to have a little bit of a revolution. We did talk about Advent last week as a a revolutionary season. Uh, And we're going to consider this just a little bit now with two movements from Messiah, George Frederick Handel's great oratorio, which you might have heard in the cathedral here on Thursday, just a couple of days ago. I'm going to look at the first two, uh, no, sorry, not the first two, the second and third movements. Uh, Comfort ye, which is a restative, and Every Valley, which is an aria. Uh, Comfort ye is, um, is an accompanied restative, a recitativo accompagnato, which means it has the strings accompanying it, rather than just a keyboard instrument. It has the strings accompanying it. tends to give it a bit more weight, usually for dramatic, um, angry things, but not, not in this case, much more comforting. Um, so Messiah, which is uh, Handel's uh, massive statement on the life of Christ, is unique, because until this point, no one takes the life of Jesus as the subject for their oratorio. I think principally because no one would dare it's, it's ever so slightly presumptuous, I think, for um, somebody in this period to say, I'm going to write the life of Christ in music. So they tend to do a lot on the, uh, on the life of saints, on allegorical ideas, faith, hope, love, um, and so forth. Uh, and Handel has already tackled quite a lot of uh, dramatic scenes. Theodora, uh, for example, uh, strong, very, very strong Christian messages in there. Uh, Saul um, gets um, gets a great oratorio. Samson, so he's already doing the big stuff. But towards the end of his life, he decides that it really has to be Jesus, and that is that is quite a statement. Uh, his the first sung words in Messiah are "Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people," which is a great statement. So there's no telling off here. Although he does quite quickly start talking about the voice in the wilderness who's crying, prepare the way of the Lord. So there is a sense that we have to get ready. It doesn't, but it doesn't tell us off. There are dire warnings from other prophets, but not from Isaiah. So Handel, as I said, starts with an accompanied restative. Uh, we then move into this wonderful aria, Every Valley shall be exalted and every hill shall be made low. Now this rather reminds me of Mary's uh, great statement in the Magnificat. Um, he hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts and exalted the humble and meek. Isaiah is talking about 
turning the world upside down. A child is going to be born who is going to be strong enough to take on the government. It's quite important. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Shoulder, not shoulders, is not Atlas. Shoulders the way to the world. One shoulder is quite enough for this child. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So this child is tiny and also huge. Uh, the mountains are going to be brought down and the valleys are going to go up. Everything you know is going to be turned on its head. Makes life a little bit scary. And it means we can't be complacent. And Advent is no time for complacency. Advent is about getting out there with your head and confronting the difficult things in a strong way. In a really strong way. Uh, here then is uh, Comfort Ye in Every Valley from the Messiah. This is John Mark Ainsley singing with the Les Musiciens du Louvre uh, with Mark Minkowski conducting. Quite a, quite a nippy version of um, Every Valley, which I like, uh, and a wonderful voice. So that's John Mark with a rather enviable control of his fast notes there. I'm quite sure I managed to get quite that amount of speed going. Any reactions? It does. Just saying, just saying that the, um, the, the stillness and the of comfort you stops, it almost stops you. It takes, it takes you by surprise. It's very, of course, this movement comes straight after an overture, and it's a traditional Baroque-type overture, so it's quite arresting at start. It's something called the French overture style, so it's quite dotted. And then there's a fugue, the same idea being thrown around by lots of different instruments, and then immediately you go into this recitative. And it is, it's a sort of throbbing nature in the string writing. It's using quavers, four quavers, dum, 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 dim. Just, it's almost a heartbeat sort of feel to it. Absolutely, yes. So the gentleman's just saying, followed immediately by joy. And it's an, it's an interesting um, statement. It's an opera composer's reaction, I would say. Because this text, you know, if you're an arch-conservative, every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill made low, the crooked straight and the rough places plain. It's pretty, um, it's pretty revolutionary stuff, this. Um, it's not the sort of thing that, you know, thinking back through history, I can't imagine Louis XVI would have been very happy to hear this text, really. So it's sort of, you know, what happens in pre-revolutionary France. Um, it is full of joy and energy, and the great thing about this performance, the reason I picked it, is because it's unstoppable energy. You sort of feel you've got a voice that can deliver, but um, Minkowski's, the way Minkowski drives the orchestra is this is a force, this is a spiritual force that cannot be resisted. It, it pushes you forward. It is, yeah, some lady here saying it's very passionate. Exactly so. Exactly so. So it's passionate and restrained, but also th 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 then we go on to the energy. So the crucial point is when Handel stops the throbbing quaver movement that we hear, and he says the words, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, and you'll notice that the orchestra suddenly starts playing short, detached chords, okay, which is the surefire sign. We're in real restative land here. Something is happening, and it's happening now. And that is the thing which arrests our attention, and then you go off in a fantastically um, exciting direction. This is an opera composer. Handel is an opera composer. You always have to remember that. He knows how to do drama. 
Um, I want to move on the same page, sticking with Isaiah, um, to this Christmas proclamation by John Taverner, which if you come to St Paul's on the 23rd and 24th of December, you can hear in our carol service. Um, This is pure Isaiah here. I've already read the business of four unto us. Uh, But the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light shines. Now, I love this statement. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's everyone. It doesn't say the special people who walked in darkness. It doesn't say the people of Israel. It doesn't say God's chosen people. The people who walked in darkness, we're all in darkness. We're all in darkness, I'm afraid, because eventually we're all going to die. And, you know, we walk in the, we try to walk in the light as much as we can when we're alive, but the, the plain fact is, at some stage, our life will end, and that means there is a darkness of some sort. And this is where the special relationship is so vitally important, because it teaches us of more than death. And through the resurrection and redemption of Jesus Christ, we have more than death. That's the difference for us now and for Adam then. When Adam gets it wrong, it's the end of the story. That's it. It's the line. That's the end of the line. There is nothing else. Jesus Christ's birth and death uh, means that we have a different inheritance and a different relationship. And I love this setting of the Tavana Christmas Proclamation because, and it's going to give you a spoiler alert here, there's a bit of a shock Okay, so be careful if you doze off. When we do this in the cathedral, the organists like to put the camera on the congregation. I shouldn't tell you this, really. (laughs) So they don't look at me particularly, because they don't have to in this piece. The rest of the time, they watch me all the time like a hawk, obviously. Uh, But in this piece, they don't have to, um, because it's an unaccompanied piece, except at a certain point, the organ is going to make an appearance, and it's pretty cataclysmic. And what they like doing is seeing the people in the congregation jump when they get a shock. (laughs) So just be careful. John Taverner, um, sadly dead now, um, is a composer massively influenced in his theology and his life and his music by the traditions of Eastern Orthodoxy, especially Greek Orthodox. And it infuses all his music and his choice of texts. So although we are principally listening to Isaiah, to the words of Isaiah, um, this is part of the great Compline, um, uh, the Christmas, uh, great Compline, Christmas Eve. Um, and so it has uh, some short phrases, God is with us, uh, hear ye people, even to the uttermost ends of the earth, which, which belong to that Orthodox service. Uh, you can hear him uh, using drones. Uh, I discovered the other day that the correct word for a drone is an ison. <laughs> so for those of you who are listening on the podcast, the name of our dean is, is, uh, is David Ison, I-S-O-N. And it's the technical name for a drone, so for the, a sustained note which carries on uh, throughout uh, throughout the, the length of a piece or a particular section. And it's particularly associated with Eastern uh, music and Orthodox music in particular. It, it means that you get dissonance. So you have a tune which is going along which goes up and down, and you have a note which is constant. So at some stage, those two things will come into conflict and then eventually into resolution. Uh, he also uses a cantor, complete with ornaments, uh, which sounds rather like uh, the Eastern uh, call to prayer, uh, a little bit. Uh, and as I've mentioned to you, don't doze off, there is also the organ, which is not part of the orthodox sound world. This is of the Western sound world, 
organs do not really form part of the liturgies of the East. It's all unaccompanied. The reason why the organ's important is because it gives us a new dimension to what's going on. So I'm not going to say any more now, but uh, let's listen to it. Oh, I should say this is Winchester Cathedral Choir with David Hill conducting and a fantastic tenor called William Kendall singing the part of the canto. Anyone, anyone got any ears left? <laughs> I decided not to turn that down for you. Right, how do you react to that then? It's very modal, yeah, yeah, entirely so. Yeah, exactly. So the, the use of the use of mel- the use of harmony in the Eastern tradition is is, is is very is very modal, and it also involves a little use of microtones. So the sort of sliding around and the ornaments you can hear. Actually, not many microtones in that, but it's it's deliberately vague. It's deliberately vague, and it makes us think of the East, uh, but it's very modal. Music that transports you upwards, it does, absolutely. I have to say, it's very, Tavana is always very hard to sing. Okay. Um, if you're doing the lamb or something, it's fine. But I spend a lot of time singing his music. There were occasions when I could almost have sent in the bill for my throat specialist, you know. Um, it can be extremely tiring to sing. Talk to me about the organ. Why has he put it there? It is, well, you're right. It is an exa- it's, an, it's an unrelated key to the choir singing. It's not discordant, it's, it's concord, it's complete concord, but it is at variance with the tonality, to come back to your modal point, of the, where the choir is singing. So the choir is singing very loudly, I have to say, that you have to throw everything at it. I mean, it's marked, everything's marked fortissimo, and it's all long, and you're all at the top of your voices, and you're screaming your heads off, except the basses are right at the bottom of their voice. And then the organ obliterates, literally obliterates the choir it's supposed to. It should, you know, you should be sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, this choir sounds amazing. And then the organ... So what's he up to? Seems to me that sorry, sorry, the whole thing throughout, in the extract that we listened to, is listen up, listen up, listen up, listen up, listen up. Yep. If you haven't got it, listen to Here it is, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's the gentleman saying that it's all about listening, and you're told constantly to listen. And just in case you haven't been, the organ is the one that really <coughs> drags you forward. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, it's slow enough to take in the gravity of it. I think that's right. I think that's quite wise. And so there's, there is a tradition in all spirituality, but again, I'd say possibly more in the East than the West, of repetition, of, of repeating, of giving you space to be, of meditating, of thinking on you know, a small portion of text and really taking that to yourself. That idea of meditation is something we've lost slightly in the West, I think. We need to get it back. Um, but he does that. I mean, the, um, the, the cantor is actually speaking, singing quite freely, but the choir, with its repetitions and its framing of the Isaiah, gives you time. I have to say, for me, the organ, is, it, reminds me of that, um, it reminds me of that phrase of John Donne's, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb at the end of one of his poems, because it's immense. It's all very well, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. It's, it's all very well saying, yeah, Jesus is going to be born, yeah, he's going to be born, yeah, he's definitely going to be born. You're suddenly confronted with a force which sounds absolutely cosmic from the organ. You can't, as you were saying, you can't hide from it. It's, come, it's right in front of you. It's here, it's now, it's real. And I, I think of that, that phrase of Dunn's, but the, the idea of immensity cloistered, something so massive that you cannot underestimate its power. And that, that for me, is what the organ is all about there.
23rd and 24th of December, 5 p.m. 4 p.m. Oops, 4 p.m. I do know what time. I do know what time. Um, at the carol service, we always finish our Christmas carol service with it. It's the last piece the choir sings. So it's um, it's a powerful one. Now, talking about powerful ones, okay, this is your challenge for today. Coming up, it's the prophet Ezekiel and Vaughan Williams. So any of you who've got, I don't know, the Fantasian theme of Thomas Tallis or O Taste and See or something really nice like that in your heads, you need to forget about that because this is a side of Vaughan Williams you probably haven't come across before. Um, it's particularly telling, I think, um, that we have the Feast of Christ the King immediately before Advent. Part of me is a bit sad that we've, we've sort of lost the concept of Stir Up Sunday, but uh, you know, it's still there, it's still there in the communion, the post-communion prayer. But it is the Feast of Christ the King, and it's one which a lot, of the, a lot of theologians and priests are uncomfortable about because they don't like getting into the pulpit and preaching about it. The idea that Christ is a king because the king term king is laden with, um, with, with a lot of baggage from history, from our history about monarchies, good and bad, about repression, about class structure and, and other things. So it's, 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 it needs a lot of unpacking, which again we're not going to do today. But there are occasions, and this is one of them, when you have to come face to face with the force and power uh, that is God. We've just done that in the taverna. Um, now Ezekiel um, is uh, one of those prophets who um, develops um, a a concern with uh, the glory of God. He's concerned with the temple, he's concerned with priesthood but, and the glory of God and what the power of God uh, is. His name uh, means strengthened by God. That's, uh, that's the, the sort of translation of it. Uh, he spends a lot of time making sure that you've got your sins in front of your face. Um, so that, so that, carrot and stick in a good way, so that you can be sure of the blessings of Christ, or blessings of God. Um, he uh, believes that this retribution is coming and that it is terrible. Uh, he says, again, wiser people than me tell me that he says, you shall know that I am the Lord 63 times in his prophecies. You will know that I am the Lord. You are going to come face to face with this. The first chapter of his uh, prophecy is a terrifying vision of angels. You've got it here, it's the second piece. I looked and behold a whirlwind came out of the north, not the east. They normally quite, things quite often come out of the east, but this has come to the north. A great cloud and a fire enfolding itself and a brightness was about it and out of the midst thereof as the colour of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. It's, uh, this is a, a, an apocalyptic, uh, poetical um, vision of what's coming. For uh, some people, especially after the horrors of the Second World War, reading this reminded them of a vision of aeroplanes. And that is what Vaughan Williams' piece is called, a vision of aeroplanes, the terror of, a, of an airstrike. Because it was something that meant something to people. It's taking something which is hard to understand and distant from us and making it real and in the now. It just reminds me a little bit, this whole experience of Isaiah's uh, experience of coming face to face with God in his vision. And you remember that when the temple is filled with smoke and the angel 
comes and touches his lip with hot burning coals. This is a, this is this is a life-changing thing, and it's not comfortable. And what you're going to hear is not comfortable. Uh, so the critical school, which thinks Vaughan Williams is a pastoral composer or cowpat music, that's the, the derogatory term which we use, uh, needs to sit down and have a listen to this. It was originally written for Harold Dark uh, in, um, and first performed by him. Heaven only knows what he made of it, I have to say, in 1956. This is a very different organ writing. It's absolutely cataclysmic from the word go. It has whirling voice parts. Um, there's not a hint of pastoralism in this. It's epic on, in scale and in its um, attempt to express the text, which is a very hard text to set, I have to say. And it does respond to the fact, I think, that Vaughan Williams has been writing film scores for ten years by this time. He's very much in the film world. So uh, you need to get yourself uh, prepared for this, and you're going to be challenged, and some of you won't like it, and that's what Advent's all about. So here we go. Still here? Go on then, tell me. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's what I was saying. You have to, you have to engage with the text of this. You have to. So, is, he, is it a good setting of the text? What I have to say to you, madam, that's not. That's nothing to do with your hearing. That that is that is exactly what the piece is like. It is an astonishing wall of sound. And you are, it's complete confusion. So you, you do struggle, I would say, to find the text. I mean, I can, I, I know it. I remember the first time I sang this piece. I don't know any other piece of Warren Williams like it. Some of the symphonic writing is like it, but not, not in the choral stuff. Or certainly not in the song section. Um, but it is, it, it is like a wall of sound. And I think that is partly what Ezekiel and Warren Williams is trying to do to us. It's trying to bring us face-to-face with the concept of God, which is utterly terrifying. This is how he starts. So there's no, there's no comfort. It's not like candles starting off. You know, comfort, you comfort my people. It's, all, it's okay, don't mind, it's okay. He's basically saying, this isn't okay. It's not okay. But something is, is about to happen, which is un, out of your um, imagination. So you say, go on, sis, sorry. Um, sorry, yes, madam, you're going to... Um, uh, we're often a little bit shocked, I have to say. I've never done it here. Um, that was Clare College, Cambridge, under Tim Brown, um, with Jamie McVinney playing, our former organ scholar, um, playing the organ. Um, it's, uh, it's exhausting to sing. It is absolutely exhausting. Um, you are a bit like the tavern. It's not, it's not sustained high writing, but you are singing at the, absolutely the top of your voice um, in terms of the dynamic range, and the intervals are hard, and the ensemble is very difficult. So, yeah, it's, it's hard. Yeah, so I've got someone who is drawing a, a, um, a comparison with, um, with uh, Grontius coming face-to-face with God in the Elgar dream of Grontius. And it is very, it's very much of that sort. In that orchestral interlude before Grontius sees God, you do feel as if you're moving through the cosmos in an utterly terrifying way. And I think, I think, that is, I think that's what he's up to. You should feel as if you've been hit around the back of the head with a wet tea towel for eight minutes. <laughs> you know, there, there is something about that. And art... We have to be very careful about this, because I could sit here, and this is one of the things I'm wrestling with for my fourth, um, for my fourth uh, talk on the Virgin Mary. I could sit here and play you beautiful music for an hour and a half. You know, it's perfectly possible. But art has got a responsibility uh, to challenge us in the same way that Advent has. It, it's no good 
being in your comfort zone. So, yes, we want to be comforted by God, but sometimes we have to go through the refiner's fire, as, as, uh, as, the, as some of the other prophets say. We have to go through the refiner's fire in order to appreciate that comfort. And this piece is a little bit like that. So I would suggest to you, if you can bear it, because I know it's, it's, an ons- it's an attack on the senses, have another listen to it. It's quite common not to like pieces the first time you come across them. We shouldn't be too hard on ourselves on that. And again, it's the same with all art. Um, I once gave a tour to somebody around the cathedral, and he looked at all the modern art. He looked at the Jerry Judah. He looked, you know, all the things we had. He said, oh, it was awful, dreadful, dreadful stuff. And I could not persuade him, I could not persuade him that art should have anything to do with being challenging. It was entirely comfort for him. It was to reinforce his view of, of the world. So anything which challenged it, which is outside his experience. I hope he's not listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> anything which was outside his experience was uncomfortable for him. So he wanted to stay in his comfort zone. So I think um, what I'm going to, I'm going to have to, sadly, I'm going to have to wind up at this point. So I'm going to keep Jeremiah for next week. I'm going to tip him into next week for the, the last thing you've got on here. But I want my final message, I think, to you today is, yes, comfort to you, comfort to me, the, the, the Isaiah words, absolutely, is what we need. Because we are in relationship with God and there is a plan. Uh, you, it's, it's all there, it's ordained from time. But in order to repent, in order to turn again, in order to remember, sometimes we have to go through quite a distilling process that the refiner's fire, um, in, in the words uh, which we have from, um, from Micah, I think it is. I'm forgetting myself. Um, I want to give you that correct reference sometime. It would be helpful. Malachi. Sorry, Malachi. Micah, Malachi. He is like a refiner's fire, and who shall stand when he appears? Well, the answer is we will, if we go through that process. So I shall see you next week for John the Baptist. Thank you very much.